Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com ZAC and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download the title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com ZAC. The term self-care is thrown around a lot these days, and I wanted to highlight it here because I feel like people may be using the term self-care in a way that's not quite appropriate to what it should be. It's like the word triggered. People throw around the word triggered. I'm triggered. I'm triggered. This triggered me. Being triggered isn't about just being upset with something. It's a response to a traumatic event that's making you relive that trauma. If you're upset with someone, you're not triggered. You're just upset, right? If you feel a bit perturbed, you're not triggered, right? But if everyone says they're triggered at everything, it makes that word meaningless. And I feel like self-care is being used in a similar way. In the online forums that I'm on and all of this sort of stuff that I'm I'm in the, the, the groups of mental health and that sort of stuff, people talk about doing self-care. But they'll talk about doing self-care in a way that's just things that make them feel good in the short term, in the interim. For example... You know, I'm going shopping as a form of self-care or I'm going to eat this cake as a form of self-care. And whilst there is some validity to those actions as self-care, I think that there's a risk that we will start assuming that any behavior that just simply feels good is is what self-care should be. But the problem with that logic is, is that you could easily go down the path of, well, getting high, getting drunk, you know, gambling, all of that makes me feel good in the moment, so that counts as self-care. And I, I strongly disagree with that because whilst things will feel good in the short term, they may not lead to a long-term benefit. And to me, that's what self-care is. Self-care should help you in the short term, but have long-term benefits. So you need to ask yourself, is this activity that I'm going to do as quote-unquote self-care, is this activity helpful for me in the long term? Is it going to improve my situation? So let's take shopping or gambling or drinking or getting high or whatever. Let's say you're in such a bad state that you're literally thinking of killing yourself or committing self-harm or, you know, doing something quite significantly bad. Then you could make an argument that getting high is better than killing yourself, right? It's better to be high and waste a day than it is to die slash self-harm, whatever, right? Same thing with any of those other activities. You could argue that doing it that one time to save your life is worth it. You're in a crisis situation. But the problem with this is, is that might be a solution to the crisis, and I'm putting this in quotations. It might keep you alive. It might stop the self-harm. But does it stop it over the long term? Is Is it an ongoing solution that will improve you? Let's say you go, I need to spend heaps of money. I need to do some retail therapy to have that self-care. Okay, fine, do your retail therapy, but also after the fact, realize that you need to instill other forms of self-care so that you don't need to spend all your money the next time you have a crisis. You don't need, make sure you've got the other things in place so that you don't need to get stoned or drunk off your face as a form of self-care, right? There's been times where I've inebriated myself, obliterated myself because that to me seemed like the only way to not kill myself, right? So in my mind, it's like, well, it's this 
or death. Sounds extreme, but you know, mood spaces does that. However, when I sobered up and when I felt better, I had to have a good hard look at myself and go, okay, clearly something isn't working here. If I need to get completely obliterated to, to survive, something's not right. So then I need to look at what ongoing self-care would be. What would self-care be like in the ongoing day-to-day so that I don't have to resort to these things? Or alternatively, have I looked into other options of self-care preemptively so that I know, okay, if this bad things happen, these bad thoughts, whatever, this mental state happens, if this life trigger happens, if I'm triggered, what can I do other than getting completely inebriated? Now, that has led me down the path of what I consider to be more true self-care. For example, seeing a therapist and coming to them and saying, hey, I had to do this to survive. What should I do instead? And then listening and taking their advice. Now, what are some of those advices that I've been given? I talk about it all the time. Meditation, exercise, writing therapy, regular therapy, socialization, all of these things help. Now, what will work for self-care for me will be different for self-care for you. So when I say, you know, those those approaches work for me, it might not be that you just do those things. But what I found is for me that if I have a general practice of every day I'm going to exercise, every day I'm going to meditate, I'm going to do writing, I'm going to speak to a therapist ongoing, I've developed that relationship, and I've got people in my life that I can talk to, all of that, like maintaining that structure is self-care. That is what self-care is. Now, don't get me wrong, despite all of that, I still have bad days. So I was in the city a couple of, maybe last week, and you know, for those that follow me on on social media, I made a post about this, a couple of posts, saying that I felt depressed, and basically, I had a jiu-jitsu competition, I did quite great, but afterwards, for whatever reason, my mental state just plummeted, and I ended up sitting beside my car, reading a book for an hour, because I didn't feel safe enough to drive home. And I considered that the act of just recuperating, regenerating, reading that book to be a form of self-care. But really it was crisis management if we go back to the previous example. Because like what was happening there? I didn't feel safe enough to drive home because my mental state was so disturbed, so stuffed up. So is it ideal that I had to sit beside my car for an hour? Not at all. Is that an ongoing strategy that I want to have? Definitely not. What is the appropriate solution to this? Well, it's about considering what is actually happening. What was happening in my brain to cause that? What caused that? Can I address it? Now, I've got a couple of ideas of what caused it, and I'm sort of thinking about it. I'm seeing a psychologist soon, so I'm going to talk to my psychologist about that. And then I'm like looking at other things in my life that could be triggering causes and other approaches to dealing with it. So my self-care in the moment leads me to ongoing self-care changes so that I can avoid having to deal with that whole problem in the first place. Ideally, I set my life up so that I don't have to do that crisis self-care. With all that in mind, I don't want you to consider that self-care is all just this maintenance grind of like every day you meditate and exercise. It can be feeling good. You know, it can be eating food that makes you feel good. It can be having a warm bath or reading a book. If those things help to keep your mind frame calm and reduced and all of that sort of stuff so you avoid the crises in the long run. 
Some people will read every day, will have a bath every day. They might even have like a glass of wine every day. Fine. But if you're getting blasted, right? If you're getting absolutely obliterated on alcohol or drugs or whatever, it's not a long-term solution. You're actually making the problem worse, right? If you have some chocolate to feel better, fine. But if you're gorging yourself on chocolate, if you're gaining a bunch of weight, if it's causing your physical body to not be healthy and cause other problems down the line, that's not ideal. If you're eating so much sugar that it's causing you to have you know, weight gain, diabetes, all of these other mental concerns that you will get from gaining weight, that's not optimal. There is a better solution and that will be ongoing self-care. I... I just want to encourage people to find what works for them over the long term so that they can get out of a crisis chain, get out of this crisis pattern of going, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, and just going from crisis to crisis to crisis to crisis and dealing with and using solutions that are temporary fixes to a major problem. I've gone there, I've been there, and it's just unsustainable. So with that in mind, I'm going to read you a chapter of my book, Under the Influence. Now, reading, getting through these chapters is, for me, a release. It's a letting go. It's a, it's it's putting the, 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 closing the door on a cycle of my life. And I consider this to be self-care in the sense that I wrote the book down, I've reviewed it, I've talked about it, and now I'm letting it out, letting it go. And that to me is an act of processing the trauma that I dealt with. Now, just a bit of warning before reading this chapter. This chapter is called Blackness. It covers the deep level, one of the instances of significant trauma that I faced. So, there's a warning here, a legitimate trigger warning. If you struggle, if you're in this sort of, in a bad state, if you think it wouldn't be good for you to listen to, turn it off now, okay? However, with this in mind, I am releasing it to the public for multiple reasons. The first one is, is that I believe that information that can help people should be freely available. And like I've said in the past about this book, People that have gone through trauma can relate to the mental state, can relate to the things that I'm saying and going through here, and can relate to other people having a shared lived experience. So for you, if that's you, maybe we can connect here. And like I said, I'm going to be releasing everything I do for free online. So if you want to support what I'm doing here, you can grab yourself a copy of the book, or you can sign up to my email list and I'll send, you know, I'll let you know when all of the chapters are coming out. So with all that in mind, this is the chapter from the book, Under the Influence. Blackness. The running of this book has brought up quite a few new and horrible memories, most of which I'll never be able to reliably substantiate. That in itself is quite traumatic. I don't foresee a way to ever truly know the reality of the darkest pasts of my childhood. All I have is the fragments and glimpses presented. What I know is that logically, given everything else that happened, the lifestyle, the people and the situation, it would not be a stretch to assume that anything could have happened. Throughout my childhood, I, I would always see things through other people's eyes. Not in the empathetic sense, but in the seemingly literal sense. I would, I would never be truly in my own mind. Rather, I would see myself from the third person perspective. This was true for most of my memories, dreams, and imaginations. It would even somehow occur in real time. For example, when walking down the street to a local shop, I would not see the comings and goings from my own perspective. Logically, I would be using my own eyes to navigate the obstacles and the like, 
but internally, my perception of reality would somehow be simultaneously presented to me from an outside perspective. It was as if I was constantly observing my life through a television set, watching the characters interact, seeing them move, hearing them talk. Just like when you're watching television, there's an emotional investment in the outcome. You know that it's all just an act and that everyone involved is just pretending. So what if the main character dies? This is a show and it's not real. So what if the brother is being bullied? This is a show and it's not real. It does not matter that someone is doing drugs in front of their five-year-old child. This is a show. It's not real. It's quite revealing just how emotionally disconnected I am from my past. It is quite hard for me to connect emotionally to a specific events or even realise something significant has occurred. Often I only realise the gravity of my situation through observing the reactions of those I'm talking to. In a sense, I'm using them as a gauge to better understand myself. I'm regularly met with strange looks when I share what I previously believed to be a typical occurrence from my childhood. This is a look of confusion, empathy and sadness. It suggests in no uncertain terms that my experience is completely alien to the listener. It is a look of shock and surprise that I made it this far. When I see this look, I never quite know how to react. When I get that look, I intentionally bring myself back, re-evaluating what happened. But because I still struggle to apply my, a reality to my own story, I actually need to detach from it enough to make it real. To do this, I'll try and imagine it happening to someone else. Like a friend was telling me about the news report that they heard with those details substituted in. For me, it's easier to personalise my past when it's applied to someone else. I'm not sure if looking back and reinterpreting is the right thing to do for my mental state. Doing so has resulted in quite a number of realisations that prior to re-evaluation were benign occurrences, holding no conscious emotional weight. However, when I see that look on people's faces, I can't help but investigate further. My personal disposition is one of disjointed reality. I have a constant sensation of living between worlds. Thus, there's a significant and ever-present sensation of unreality. My existence seems dull, with the colours and sounds muted. I struggle to connect to anybody, anything, or even to myself. I feel like a radio that is out of tune, always lacking that crisp clarity that others seem to have. Life rarely feels real. It's all a part of the show of life. Logically, I know I'm wrong, but my god, it's hard to actually feel. My psychologist suggests this is a symptom of the mental disorder dissociation. This is basically a wider array of experiences from mild detachment to immediate surroundings to more severe detachment from physical and emotional experiences. Detachment from reality. Really, it's a defense mechanism that we all have. There's a reason you don't remember all the details of the car crash or what happened when you're in a fight. Our brains have a way of repressing traumatic memories so they can't hurt us. We effectively forget because we remember it because to remember would be too painful. For me, however, this function is on overdrive. Thinking over my past, I struggled to come up with very many memories, either good or bad. It's like the camera was on, but nobody was recording. The memories that I do have seem to pertain to some other person. From time to time, yes, from another time. Yes, it's me, but that me is not someone I feel innately connected to. Sometimes I have moments of clarity, which I feel like my life just started today, as in right now, this instant, and all of my memories have somehow been inserted into my brain. But the procedure went wrong, so I'm stuck feeling skew-if. Sometimes I check into reality, and because, and it becomes overwhelmingly apparent that everything is actually real. Imagine that in one st instant, all your delusions are shattered in front of your eyes. I go from merely knowing things to intell intellectually to feeling them, connecting with them, and somehow even reliving them. Writing this down sounds exceptionally crazy, because part of me knows and connects and interacts with the world, but a larger part does not. It's like a small outer shell is protecting the innocent, sensitive, and empathetic layers from the truth. Blocking off, altering, filtering, or outright denying anything in order to get through. However, the shell is cracking, and that shell is tr and that is truly terrifying. 
The last time this happened, it was particularly bad. Out of nowhere, all my past came back to me. I felt connected to it, like it was happening again, like I was there. I felt the anger and the rage like never before. I wanted to scream and punch a hole through a wall just to feel the destruction. I remember all the pain and suffering I'd witnessed, as well as what I'd caused. I revealed every, mo I revealed every moment of wrongdoing and every instance I've caused pain to others. I felt such immense guilt that I probably would have killed myself then and there had I had the utensils. From there I started to think of everyone, humanity as a whole. I came to the realisation that all of history had happened. It was all real. All that violence, genocide, murder, rape, pillage, greed, pollution, destruction and famine are real. In that instance, all the blocks that were put up preventing me from feeling suffering was shattered. It was like I'd been watching a movie my whole life, believing it just to be a fiction that is separate from my own reality. Then, all of a sudden, it's real. Every implication of truth is real. That night I cried for hours in my wife's arms and got so inebriated that I completely forgot myself. My mind is analogous to a, with a water dam reaching capacity, only, only allowing trickles of association through until one day the pressure is too much and the dam breaks. I become flooded with reality and countless emotions that I still don't have the capacity to deal with. There is safety in dissociation. It's not always bad. However, sometimes I check into the good things. My wife's smile, the smuggle in her eyes. The panting of my dogs or the taste of watermelon. The kiss of a cool breeze or the warmth of the sun. These moments are real, and on good days the world is an amazing place, filled with love and joy that I once thought was impossible. Two sides of the same coin, I guess. Since starting this book, new memories have begun to surface. Maybe the process of writing and reliving my past has started to unlock the deeper and more repressed aspects of my childhood. Writing is almost a catalyst that begins the process of connecting the fragmented puzzle that is my memory. Recently I've started to have recollections that I just can't shake. I have no way of verifying the truth of them because there's no one who I can ask. My father is gone and the details of the people that he was associated with at the time are long outdated or forgotten. All that I have are fragments of memory combined with the reality of what life was like at Dad's house. <sighs> One memory fragment begins with me lying on a bed in a white room. I do not know where I am or how old I am, but I look young, perhaps primary school age. The blankets are cast aside to the floor, and the room is a mess. Clothes and random junk are piled everywhere, but the bed is surprisingly clean. White sheets cover the springy mattress. I am nude, face down, hugging a pillow. Behind me is a large man with arms outstretched. He's holding me down. One hand on the base of my neck, and the other is on the small of my back. They're covered in long black hair and feel rough, like workers' hands, calloused and unclean. He's telling me to be quiet and stay still. I bury my head in the pillow and hold it tighter. It smells as if it's been left in the linen cupboard for way too long. I grip my teeth and begin to cry. I squeeze harder. The pressure on my neck increases as he releases his other hand. Slowly and deliberately, he moves it lower and begins to hurt. Then it's just blackness. All I remember of it is glimpses seen from an, internal an external perspective. It's like I'm the aggressor assaulting my younger self. I see it through his eyes. I don't know for certain what, will ha what happened to me that day, and I never will. Trying to recall such trauma is fraught with issues, as memory recall at the best of times is faulty. However, the fact that I have significant holes in my memory at least tells me about the severity of the situation I faced growing up. Regrettably, in that house and with those people, anything could have happened. People often wonder if it's wise for me to introspect, to investigate my past. They'll suggest that there's a risk of discovering something that I don't really want to discover, like the dam breaking under increasing pressure of the flood of water. From my experience, it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes I'm provided with deeper insights and opportunities for healing. However, it can also be highly traumatic, revealing events and thought patterns that I was honestly not ready for. It's like Pandora's box of sorts. 
should I open it and risk the outcome? Regardless of what I find, when I discover something new, it needs to integrate with my memory and my worldview. I'm changed in the process. The act of searching has become an integral part of my core self. By searching for my past, I will hopefully better understand the present and thus create a positive future. Whether or not I'm conscious of it, my past has shaped me and is still impacting me to this day, and I would prefer to fight my demons face to face than be manipulated by them from behind the scenes. Ultimately, I'm still not sure if associating is a good thing. If I had the choice between non-existence or the extremes ups and downs of reality, I'm not sure what I would choose. Regardless, it's not like my preferences even matter. Reality comes in waves. All I can do is keep walking the path of recovery and dealing with whatever life and my mind decide to throw at me. Embracing reality does have one distinct advantage to dissociation. It allows for meaning. If everything is real, then there is a point to all this madness, even if, if the point is just to help others through it, to reduce their suffering, and to connect. So, that that chapter, Darkness, from my book, Under the Influence Reclaiming My Childhood, obviously contains things that, that are confronting and challenging and even reliving it I can feel this weight of association coming over me but I wanted to sort of give a follow-up to that the follow-up is multiple number one I've spoken to my psychologist about that and she said if you have a memory gap don't fill it with the worst things possible if you don't know what happened maybe try and assume not the worst right Stuff might have happened, but you don't know what stuff. Secondly, since writing this, I've had conversations with my mum and other people. And around the time that this happened, my father actually came to my mother suggesting that there had been, that he was wondering if something had happened to me. And you know, looking into the potentiality of a stepfather or someone else in my life on my mum's side doing something. So it opens up more questions and, you know, onto the idea of is it wise to investigate down this path or should you just let it go? It's a tough one. It's a tough one because, you know, it's it would be good to just be able to put it out of my mind and go, this happened and just move on from it. But there will always be the question mark. Who did the thing and what did they do? And what should I do about it? I don't know if I'll have any answers to the first two questions, but what I should do about it was and is talk about it, speak to a therapist, connect about it, self-care. So on the topic of self-care, having read this, having been impacted by it now, what self-care will I do? Well, I'm about to go eat. And then I'm going to go train. I'm going to do some Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, my martial art, which not only is socially beneficial, but it's also physical, you know, releases all the endorphins. And the act of doing Jiu-Jitsu is learning how to fight. So it is empowering. So that I know that that can never happen to me again, right? So I'm attacking it from multiple fronts. So like I said, if you want to grab a copy, you can. It's out now as a paperback ebook and audiobook. I'll put a link to that chapter so you can read along and read the other chapters that I've put up. Um, but if you want to support the podcast in any other way, um, please just give it a rate and review wherever you're listening to it because that helps spread the word. And if you know someone that would like to, that you think would benefit from this episode, send them a link, 
let them know what it's about, and let's get the conversation going. You can connect with me on social media at Zach P. Phillips if you want to talk about that chapter or talk about self-care specifically. Thanks for listening, guys. So you may have noticed that I've now got sponsorship for this podcast from audible.com. I wanted to get sponsorship on the podcast for quite a while, but I wanted to make sure that the products and services that I'm promoting are things that I agree with and that I use. And audible.com, the audiobooks, is something that I highly recommend that everyone gets involved with. The reason is simple. Like, we only have limited time. So when I'm exercising or when I'm driving, I'm listening to an audiobook because I can be doing those tasks and still reading. And, you know, like I attribute a wide variety of books basically as one of the cornerstones to my self-improvement strategy. I do my personal practices, I see therapists and get advice from people in real life, and I read a lot. So what I'm going to be doing at the end of the podcast, this episode and all the episodes moving forth, is suggesting to you books that I use, that I've read, that have benefited me and therefore may benefit you. And that if you follow audibletrial.com slash ZAC, you'll be able to grab yourself a copy of the book to listen to for free with their membership options. So the first book I want to suggest to you is Mindfulness in Plain English by Bhante Gunarantana. Mindfulness in Plain English basically does what the name suggests. It distills the practice of mindfulness and it's sort of like an introduction to meditation. I've actually got the physical copy of this book that I read and I've also listened to the audio book and I've, I find that I'm going to keep coming back to this book because it's one of those one of those books that are just an invaluable resource. It really does do what the name suggests. It distills mindfulness into a simple approach that you can just learn and apply yourself. So if you're interested in listening to that book, head over to audibletrial.com slash ZAC and grab yourself a free copy today on the trial membership. Cheers. Cheers.